Hello, I'm Lily Hyam. And I'm Gordon Johnston. Welcome to the Last Question Podcast, a production of DataFest, the ongoing series of data and artificial intelligence innovation events run by the Data Lab, Scotland's innovation centre for data and AI hosted by the University of Edinburgh. We're delighted to be joined today by one of our favourite authors, Adrian Tchaikovsky. Adrian won the 2016 Arthur C. Clarke Award for his incredible novel, Children of Time, and has garnered dozens of international awards and nominations for his works, Children of Ruin, Cage of Souls, Doors of Eden, and many more. We're really so pleased to have Adrian join us today. Um, And this is probably going to be part one of two, uh, because our conversation with him was so interesting. Uh, I think we both read Children of Time uh, around the same uh, around the same time during the 2020 lockdowns, uh, where we would send each other books that we were enjoying. Um, I think it was also around the same time that we read Shishin Lu's Dark Forest uh, trilogy and Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson. So we're very much in the mood for this kind of millennia-spanning adventure. It's also nice to be in the minds of some other non-human creatures for a while i was kind of getting a bit sick of being stuck in my own human brain exactly being a human during the pandemic didn't feel particularly great so something that we're going to be discussing a lot in today's episode is unconventional computing and for anybody not familiar with the term unconventional computing is basically just a process of computation through something other than standard digital computers this could include old-fashioned mechanical computing or cutting-edge quantum computing or even computing through chemical reactions and biological processes. This will be part one of our discussion and we're going to talk about that unconventional computing, um, including things like biological computing and artificial intelligence in its different forms. In Children of Time, the spiders utilise the brute force of ants to develop a society based on unconventional computing and they harness billions of them to simulate the processing power of a computer. Um, do you think that biological computing will play a significant part in humanity's future? I mean, I, I, I guess if I was putting money on it, I would probably say no, because we don't tend to think like that. But recently, it's been interesting to watch people um, be more open to bi- biotech solutions. Um, so, uh, for I mean, I've, most notably, the one that I've, I've had sent to me on Twitter about 5,000 times so far for obvious reasons is the this using the um, a dead spider as a grasping tool mm-hmm. um, because you can still util- utilize its kind of pneumatic um, exoskeleton. Um, and it's very efficient. And this is one of, the, one of the things that, because biology has had a long time trying to sort of hit and miss finding solutions to problems, you can get a lot of very efficient things um, from nature uh, beyond what we've already got. I mean, I mean the, the big one I'm kind of waiting for is utilizing something like spider silk to make uh, a material with sufficient tensile strength for a space elevator. Because mm-hmm. if we're going to do space, we can't just do it by sending rockets up and down. Um, you know, no matter no matter the current private enterprise and that thing, that's not the answer because it's colossally inefficient. If you can get a space elevator working, and there's you know, the math says there's no reason you can't as long as you've got the the material strength. And I appreciate this is not computing we're talking about, but it's it's still it's the, it's the ethos behind what might lead to biological computing. Um, you know that. It is vastly more efficient, and and I think this is the one thing that any kind of biotech solution can offer is it's frequently far more efficient than just doing things our own brute force way of making everything uh, from scratch. So, bio- 
I suspect there probably is a a potential timeline from now that would lead to us using some manner of biological computing. I don't think it would be ants, which is a bit of a shame. But um, um, if we're ever going to have actual um, sort of AI or anything like that, I wonder if that would be the way to do it, is having an actual biological computing framework to host it on because... A, because I'm not convinced our own computers are ever going to get quite that complex, and, um, and B, because the way that biology organizes itself is probably more conducive to something like a biological intelligence, which is what we're, we're aiming for. Um, but I think it would take a big, uh, a big shift in the way people are willing to countenance technology working, not least because uh, the big fear I think about biotech solutions, especially for something as complex computing is, do you have the same control over them? Although these days, frankly, um, you know, neural net AIs and purely mechanical uh, computing is sufficiently complex. I don't think we have the same control over them. <laughs> yeah. We don't know what's happening in those middle nodes. There was that recent um, business with the, 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 um, the engineer who thought who who was concerned the chatbot had become sentient, and that kind of all blew up. But the base, the root problem behind that is the the computers are sufficiently complicated that we don't know what they're doing, and therefore it is impossible to say for absolute certainty. No, this is just doing its thing. It's like the multivac in the last question. You know, it gets to the point where nobody understands how it works. You just kind of rely on it. It's interesting about the uh, efficiency of biology as well. I think I was reading recently about how um, the brain operates on something like the amount of energy that one light bulb does compared to a computer, which takes a lot more energy, but it can do maybe even more uh, computing processes at the same time. So in that way, even just for energy efficiency, to be able to power something that can make enough computations that we need um, might have to end up going back to the biological energy efficiency. Yeah, although, I mean, I, I think the problem with that kind of comparison is that the computers, all the computers that we have, do not really work like the brain does. You know, computers are very good at being computers, and the brain is very good at being a brain, but they're not actually the same thing. You know, we cannot compute as fast as a computer. Um, and it, I mean, it always fascinates me that the word computer predates the things computers because they were it was originally a job that a person had to compute. Um, and obviously the reason no one does that is does it anymore is because computers are much, much better at it. Um, but the, a computer's computation is not like a brain's braining. Um, and so it's very difficult to draw those comparisons. I mean, there was an, an XKCD um, essay about uh, at what point in history did the, the total computing power available to mankind sort of surpass a human brain? Or possibly I might even have been surpassed all the human brains. And it's one of those, well, it depends how you look at it. And if you look at it this way, then it was quite early on. And if you could do it that way, it hasn't happened and probably never will. And it is a lot like uh, what we were discussing earlier on. Um, you know, the author C. Clark quote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Uh, but we heard somebody else say any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from nature. You know, nature tends to be really quite efficient when it comes to these things. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, again, it's yes and no, because it's you. Yes, as long as it's doing the specific thing it's evolved for, I guess. Um, but the thing you can do with a computer and the thing that the, the Porsches do with the ants in um, Children of Time is you find a way that you can then effectively 
customize what it does on the fly. You can reprogram it to do different tasks. You can program it to be flexible and do do tasks as and when they appear, which is something that um, nature frequently isn't isn't terribly good at. And again, it's one of the it's it's a very apple to oranges thing. What we um, there's this this very very persuasive idea that yes, a computer is an artificial brain, um, which has been I suspect has been around since as long as there have been computers. Um, kind of fundamentally misunderstands what a computer is and what a brain is uh, because there there is a bit of overlap and as we've made them more complicated that area of overlap has grown larger but not a lot larger still most of the things that computers do are not what what brains do and not what nature does um i mean this is i mean this is you know going back to the the you know the zombie spider kind of gacha claw thing um, that's the, the interesting thing is people are, are now at least looking at nature for solutions to engineering problems. And that's, I, I would imagine, I mean, one of the things, uh, if we, uh, let's say we were to look at ants, one of the things, um, another recent article I, I've, I've been sent, which is, but also something I, I personally been writing about for quite a while is an ant's nest and a brain work in very similar ways. The way that our neurons, um, sort of come to consensus and give us decisions is very much the way that an ant's nest comes to a decision based on the individual inputs of its members. Um, and so I think if we're ever going to have that big singularity step up by biological computing would probably be the path to it, which terrifyingly probably means that there's some tech billionaire who's doing it right now. And we just don't know about it, I guess. That's always my concern about any single technology is that there's a there's an Elon Musk character out there just waiting to end the world in some new and imaginative way. Maybe it will start with something like his neural lace. I don't know how that's going, but um, start off with something which is a hybrid. So some human computer interface, brain computer interface, um, where it will be a hybrid between both rather than just like, here is a yeah. human mind uploaded onto a computer. Go. Well, that's so... Yeah, I mean, I, I'm aware this is one of the big, the big interesting areas of science where there are scientists who will tell you this can never be a thing. There is, it is literally impossible. And others will tell you, yes, we'll do it in about five years. Um, and it's the thing I've written about on a, I've act in a, I've basically taken a variety of standpoints in my work from this is the thing that, uh, so I mean, I've actually recently delivered um, a manuscript where one of the things that is mentioned is, yes, in our quest for kind of immortality, we uploaded um, minds, but they just weren't us enough. Um, which is, I think, probably one of, the, one of the things you might well get. You could probably end up programming an algorithm in that chatbot style to sound very, very much like you. And at what point do you decide this is me? I have uploaded my mind onto a computer rather than it just being an algorithm that's, that has looked at all of your social media and is very good at mimicking the way that you come across. And we're at that point, you could absolutely get it. You know, if, if someone has a large enough um, sort of footprint um, on the internet, you could absolutely train an algorithm to sound exactly like them and quite possibly predict what they would say in any given, any given situation. And again, I'm absolutely sure someone is doing this at the moment. Um, you know, it would be very useful for a variety of world figures to know exactly how they're likely to react on Twitter to any given thing, um, but it doesn't make them make it them. It is very much it. It is um, it's a mask. Is is my kind of 
image for that kind of thing. And I think this is this is all you get, and the masks will get better and better. But just like the chatbot and the engineer, you say, well, at what point do you decide that this is you? Because, of course, the one thing that you need to know to know if it is you is to be that thing and experience it. And it will swear blind that it is you because that's what it's programmed to do. Um, so I think that's the big problem with uplift. Uh, not, sorry, not uplift, with um, uploading a mind onto a computer is we will never be sure if we've done it because we are very good at making computers. We are extremely good at making computers to fool us into thinking that they are people. That's, uh, I mean, you know, the, the reason that the, um, the computer operating system that Veronica Kern uses is Eliza, is that's the call, you know, the callback to that famous um, case, which has a very simple computer algorithm that is absolutely convincing to a lot of people um, that they are talking to a real person. Which shows you that the you know the Turing test is 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 vastly out of date as a as a diagnostic tool because we bridge the gap we do the work to um, make that thing a person in our heads. Um, yeah, but in the you know in Children of Time, I have um, well, I, I so Children Children of Time is probably my most complex look at this particular question, and so you have Avronica, and for people who haven't read the book, this is someone who. Um, links herself to a com to a computer in order to survive uh, basically a long period of hibernation, to, um, and then ends up kind of with no no hard line as to where her cognition ends and the computer begins, and then is trans is effectively uploaded onto a variety of different media, including the aforementioned ants, which are being used with a computing substrate by um, the non-human um entities in children of time um and there is a lot of discussion throughout the books as to precisely what there is of her and how much there is of her and how much of the original person is there and i mean one of the things uh i think it's mentioned in children of ruin it certainly comes up in the new one children of memory is the idea that she is absolutely convinced that she has avrana kern right up until the point where she has to access something that avrana khan would know and she doesn't know it so she, ha I mean, in a very computery way, she doesn't know what she doesn't know. Um, she basically is just she. Part of her programming is the certainty of her own identity, which came with her because Avronica was an extremely strong-willed person. Um, but she's forced to concede that actually she's probably not Avronica when she starts looking at the fine detail. So you're left with a personality, and you can tell from our meeting of the original human at the very beginning of children of time that it is obviously based on the original fairly acerbic personality of veronica but based on is kind of what you get on the other hand i mean you know having said all that fairly fairly negative stuff it may that may yet be enough I mean, at the end of the day, you know, if, if, if a very, very advanced computer program based on me could kind of go on into the future, I'd, I'd, I'd take that. That would be a, 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 a good legacy. I don't think it would be me. Um, I mean, one of the other very common sci-fi tropes with this is the idea that there is a moment when the you that you are leaves your kind of the, you know, the glob of greasy gray matter in your head. and 
you are inside the computer now and you have to um and that's not gonna happen um you know it is entirely possible that a yeah well we have no idea if it's ever going to be possible for there to be an actual consciousness inside a computer and like as going back to the previous question a biotech computer is probably a better bet for that um because it is is more complex and because it's order organized in a way that we know can generate our own sense of consciousness um but it won't be the same consciousness even if it has the same memories and believes it's the same the same entity the you that was in your head remains in your head and of course the other the other idea is a lot of in a lot of the cases um that we see in fiction um and i think there's an, even a tv show upload which is on at the moment um which is to do with this um you have to destroy the original to create the copy and while that is narratively convenient i don't think it's necessarily a thing that's going to be the case in real life if we ever try it mm-hmm. um which leads to another possibility I've written about, which is the idea that vastly powerful people just creating enormous armies of themselves. Um, because, the, yeah, why, why stop at one? Why not have an entire civilization that is all you? Because I can think of a lot of people in the world that would be delighted with that idea. Yeah, it depends uh, how the creation of the copy would be made, I suppose. If you're doing it with um, kind of from a, a functional uh, viewpoint of looking at inputs and outputs and s- um, analyzing the outputs to work out what a future copy would do as a system, then you could just copy it non-destructively. But if you're going to go fine-grained into kind of the inner workings of the system in the brain, then um, all the scanning technology we would have to be able to look at perhaps like placements of neurons and how those are in a network in your brain would involve some kind of destructive scanning technique as we know so far. Well, my my... My my take on that my take on that one is most of the brain activity that goes on is on the is 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 very close to the surface. The big the my understanding at least is, and I'm I'm happy to be correct on this that the the core of the brain doesn't do that much. It's the effect of the crenulated surface that that is where most of it takes place. And our ability to read the activity of that is common in incredible leaps and bounds in the you know the just the last decade. And our ability to actually implant um sort of technology to read that has also come along enormously i mean the, the you know the fine level of things we can make to read individual neurons and stuff like that is now you know mind mind blowingly uh, good compared to what we had just a few years ago um i suspect uh, and the the other uh paired with this what is it that is in us at any given time and my personal feeling on this is it's not the physical brain. It is the ongoing ele- electronic transmission process. It's the state. It's the, you know, it's the state of the neurons. It's not the, 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 the physicality of the neurons that generates an us. Because if it was just the physicality of the neurons, you could bring people back from the dead, um, if nothing else. Um, you know, the, but the fact is that when that state winks out, you cannot bring it back. Um, the patterns matter. Yeah, it's the, yeah, but and the pattern. The, I mean, the patterns are us. We are we are the we are the current state of pattern of neuro neuron firing in our brain at any given moment, which is makes us feel terrifyingly ephemeral. Um, so, in that case. 
re you know having having your kind of your mesh reading the activity in the neurons is going to give you a a you that you can transfer i mean if if you link yourself with um a your sufficiently complicated computer and it mimics your state and you'd say you know you stay linked to it for um whatever the sufficient period of time is and it's mimicking your state then eventually and eventually presumably you have pulled the rip cord on that computer hard enough that it will keep going I mean, the other thing, uh, something I do in Children of Ruin is this very, of quite an old idea of what if you had something in between the two um, halves of the brain that passed information received backwards and forwards? Because we, you know, we have quite a narrow connection um, between the two halves of the brain. In some uh, rare surgical procedures, it can even be, it would be severed um, to separate those two halves. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a drastic cure for certain types of severe epilepsy, I believe. Um, and in those cases, the two halves of the brain will just get on with things. Um, and you people learn to adjust for the fact that they, there is no communication between them. But you could have a thing. You could have a thing between those halves, which communicated everything backwards and forwards. Um, and then you could have that thing start to insert. You, know, you learn the patterns and start to insert um, its own inputs backwards and forwards. And effectively, your left half of the brain would believe they came from the right half and so forth and so on. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it is in a variety of ways, a thought experiment, but, um, if that thing in the middle was connected to a sufficiently complex computer, it could learn an awful lot about what your brain was doing and replicate that and become another you in that way. Um, so I think there, there are, there are, I mean, genuinely, I think that non-destructive ways of looking at this are probably considerably more likely to bear fruit than just kind of sectioning the brain as finely as <clears throat> possible and, re and rebuilding it in a, in a virtual sort of environment. Yeah, I suppose it's, like you said before, actually, it depends what it's going to be used for. If, uh, if you don't need something so fine-grained that you need to see every neuron and how it uh, acts over time, and you can do it by reading patterns with the kind of like methods we have with different um, probes put in the brain or reading EEGs, um, if that's enough for some uses, then we'll probably do that instead. Maybe like the example you mentioned earlier of being able to predict your own behavior in different situations. Uh, well, or, I mean, I suspect people are going to be always in more interested in predicting other people's behavior. But um, I mean, I don't think you need their brain for that. I mm. think that, uh, like I say, if someone has a big enough internet footprint, you can do it from that without ever needing to get involved in their brain at all. Because, um, you know, and again, I, I'm sure this is this is being done and it's uh, at, at a variety of levels from advertising and marketing to counterterrorism. But you know, if you look at someone's activity online, um, these days we're also plugged in. The, the, a large number of people, you could quite readily predict how they would react to any given situation in the same way you could probably predict how any given demographic will react to it in majority to any given situation. Yeah, And then, you know, this, is very, this is very, very far from kind of brain upload. But, and it's also, I suspect, far, far more real than brain upload current guess. We spoke to a technology ethicist uh, in a previous episode called Stephanie Hare, and um, this came up uh, because she was advocating a sort of dead man switch, so that as soon as you die, every trace of you online is deleted by some, you know, magical process to prevent anybody from copying you uh, against your will, you know, after your death. I think that's quite a good idea. I mean, yeah, that 
I that sa- sounds like a um, God. That's a, that that is that there's the weird kind of um, post mortem electronic suicide. Uh, <laughs> I can certainly see the point of that. Although at the same time, the idea of actually leaving. I'm all you know. I've always been very invested in the idea of leaving something mm-hmm. behind. So it's it is quite drastic from that situation. Yeah. Um, I'm going to throw a book at you, not one of mine. Um, do you know? Uh, I'm well. I'm, I, I you will absolutely know uh, Cory Doctorow as a writer. Um, mm-hmm. Given 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 your interests, do you know Walk Away? Yeah. That has probably one of the most uh, nuanced approaches to uh, to upload in that. So upload technology is a possibility and walk away, but the uploaded personality cannot deal with the complexity and difference of its situation and goes mad very quickly. <laughs> so what they do is the uploaded personality, they basically upload a very, a, they make it basically effectively a, a coarser and coarser copy until what they have got is simple enough that it can abide by its own if they can abide its own existence and get the grips of what it is, and then they slowly bootstrap it back up towards full complexity. And I thought that was an extremely clever mm-hmm. um, way of looking at it. Yeah, I like that idea. I wish someone had done that to me. Or maybe they are doing that to me. <laughs> what, what, I mean, one, one, la- one last word on the idea of uploaded um, intelligence is there's another branch of science which actually militates quite strongly against it ever working in a way that we imagine. Um, which is we are becoming more and more aware that more and more of our cognition is driven by stuff that is not in the brain. Mm. Um, you know, even down to things like gut, the gut microbiome and the, you know, the hormonal system, all that stuff that we used to think was just kind of sloshing about getting in the way of, of our Spock-like logical supremacy. That's all us. Um, and quite possibly, if you copy the brain, you might get a computer. <laughs> <laughs> in a way, because so much of the stuff that is us is that emotional system um, that uh, we have kind of tried to discount as irrational and irrelevant and so forth. But it's mm. us. And if yeah. you copied the brain without the body and without those inputs, I don't know how much of us you would actually get at the end of the day. Yeah, some of the what we could still call information processing is happening outside of the brain. Yeah. Yeah, we are. We are. You, know, you are what you eat in a very real kind of way. We are our livers. We are our. We are our guts. We are all manner of these systems. Because of course, I mean that's the other thing about biological systems is they don't evolve necessarily terribly efficiently in a very compartmentalized and logical way. Um, any kind of biological system, from a cell to an organism to an ecosystem, is a large number of things developing. In, um, in a community, whether it's an antagonistic or a cooperative community, um, over a very long period of time, and therefore every bit has evolved to take into account all the other bits. Mm, we're evolving ecosystems, not evolving individuals. It also sounds like um, we're getting to a, 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 more, a further point in science where it's even more breaking down of dualism. A lot of us realise that it's not like soul and body and now we're working out more that's not even brain and body yeah yeah which uh, i mean i and i think for a long time that was a very it was a very seductive idea that you could free us from infirmity and and weakness by kind of separating the brain from the body and you have the whole all the brain in the jar and they saved hitler's brain and even the martians in um war of the worlds 
are very much built on the idea they are just brains and the tripods and the other machines they have, although you know, they make bodies at their convenience. And that's the, even though they are obviously, they are the monstrous bad guys, that is still kind of the, the intellectual dream. And that is also where most, a lot of the um, brain upload sort of fiction goes is the idea. Well, once you've got the brain, you can be anything. You can, you know, you can be a spaceship, you can be a, um, uh, a robot on Mars, you can be all of these things you can be if you can free the brain from the body. But yeah, you are kind of then freeing whatever is the brain from the thing that is also you. You, you do see in uh, Children of Time as well, the kind of um, the way Avrana Kern's mind changes over time. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and like I say, I mean, there, there's quite in the, um, there's quite a lot of sort of philosophical stuff thrown at that idea in the um in the new book children of memory as well it's one, yeah. one of the one of the major strands in it um especially especially because um i have to think through how i'm going to say this without massively spoiling the second <laughs> book there is a particular type of intelligence that turns up in the second book um which is very very non-human and very very sort of problematic for all the other characters um, and a lot of children of memory is from the point of view of that and precisely how that stands in relation to, to, to humans and more traditional biological intelligence. So, yeah, I mean, children, a big part of children of memory is just an examination of what intelligence is and what it is, you know, what it is to try and be human when you're not. Mm, I'm intrigued to work out how you're going to do that because it really does seem like a difficult uh, point of view to write. Well, I mean, this, this is the series in which I try and do difficult things. <laughs> this actually brings on to another thing that we were going to ask. Um, obviously, uh, a lot of your books feature non-human uh, protagonists, and it must take a completely different approach to writing those characters and still making them, you know, relatable and approachable to an audience, um, whether it's the spiders and Children of Time or the cephalopods and Children of Ruin. Um, do you take a different approach to writing those characters, even though they span like many, many generations, or do you sort of treat them as, for lack of a better word, you know, humans and then people, uh, people and then work backwards? Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I guess, I mean, they're people, but they're not human. I guess is the 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 the, the first thing that that that, it, that in, informed the way I approach them. Though I build them from the ground up. Um, based on my understanding of the actual natural history of the species I'm dealing with, or if I'm creating something genuinely alien, just working logically from first principles. I mean, there's a very, very good book called Evolving the Alien by uh, Cohen and Stewart, which is kind of a, uh, it's also, um, it's, I think it's also called What Would an Extraterrestrial Look Like, depending on what edition you get. But it is an extremely good book for how to think when designing um alien species and just looking you know what 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 things are likely to happen what things are unlikely to happen what is a repeated pattern in evolution on earth that you could probably expect an alien to also do like you know if there is light it can probably see because eyes have evolved many many times and photo you know photoreactive chemicals are a very common thing um, whereas there are other things you can find where I think, well, this only happened the once. So if you reran evolution, you probably wouldn't get this thing. Hmm. Um, and, and that kind of thought is, is, is really useful. And then because obviously my main focus of, of interest is often sort of how the, what the sentience is like and what it's, um, the, you know, the 
civilization and sociology and so forth. You just, it's a logical sort of grassroots, grassroots upwards process. You think, well, if it's coming from this and these are the things that are driving, that are driving it, how does that express itself um, when it has more of a conscious um, understanding of its world? What's, you know, what, what is it likely to believe? What are its social structures going to be? And you know, obviously you're never doing this in a vacuum. And so obviously you've got things like the spider gender politics form this weird kind of mirror of human gender politics and things like that. Um, I mean, the octopuses are a lot more difficult because there's this weird thing about, oct um, about octopuses that they, even at their most social, they kind of hate each other most of the time. And that's relatable. Yeah. But building that into a civilization is really hard. <laughs> um, so that was, that was, it was a lot of fun just kind of, because obviously to a certain extent you have an end result and you have to kind of do this sort of post facto building it. Well, like, you know, I need them to have a civilization. So how is that going to come about? Mm -hmm. um, and, um, <clears throat> and then there's another, it's not quite the same focus, but there's another species in children and memory, which gets the same kind of treatment in it and has a very different way of, of development and advantage and limitations. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking there with you know, particular, um, I mean, neurodivergence is, is, is a, the thing I'm looking at, I guess, in that in particular. And, and the idea that um, rather than being the problem that a lot of people like to characterize it as actually maybe neurodivergence is a super useful thing um in a lot of a lot of situations so it's hmm. really interesting uh one of my favorite characters uh in your books is um kit the crab-like character uh <laughs> uh who sells advertising space on his outer shell i mean i really enjoyed that because we really can't be too far away from that in human society yeah well the, yeah the honey lamber are, uh, are interesting because you you don't ever get kit's point of view and so you you have to kind of try and work out what's going on based on human assumptions which are not terribly accurate and it's one of those things <clears throat> i've just actually finished finished doing an editing pass on the third book in that series mm -hmm. and you know there is there is there's uh, quite a lot of kit stuff still going is still um going on and you get a bit more of an insight, especially with um, his relationship with the human crew of the Vulture God. Um, and you get a few more bits where he's very much front and center doing his thing. The idea of uplifting animals to comparative human intelligence is a popular trope in sci-fi, from the island of Dr. Moreau to David Brin's Uplift universe to Rocket from Guardians of the Galaxy. But it seems to be a very anthropocentric view of what human intelligence is, or sorry, of what intelligence is and can be. Uh, in other words, uplifting seems to imply that gaining human level intelligence is desirable and a progression from animal intelligence, a progression. However, in your novels, Children of Time and Children of Ruin, the uplifted animals take on quite different forms of intelligence. And it sounds like in Children of Memory, this will happen too. Do you think we need to be more open about what we recognize as intelligence and also what kinds of intelligence we value. I think even just the start with that you're writing such different intelligences means that you probably have a very open mind to begin with of what intelligence is. Yeah. I mean, I, I so my, my basic model is obviously one of the things I've had to grapple with quite a lot in a variety of different books is well, how am I going to put over an intelligence that is not a human intelligence? Um, and also, obviously, how am I going to have human characters 
interact with something that is not a human intelligence. And I, I tend to work with a model which is, um, it starts with commonality, um, because at the very basic, there are a series, certainly when you're dealing with anything else from Earth, and this is quite possibly a something that would be common to most, uh, to an alien species, is at the very early ends of evolution, you are dealing with very common things. You are going to need to develop certain common things. So you are going to want to make more of yourself, otherwise you will die out. Um, you are going to want to survive, therefore, to do that. You are going to want to um, avoid things that will impair your survival. So hunger, fear, there are going to be certain basic things that are innate in a toolkit um, from a very, very early point. I absolutely, I mean, I am, I am unapologetically um, sort of and you know, waving the flag for animal intelligence. And across the last 10 years, there's been an absolute explosion of um, behavioral research showing that intelli you know, intelligence, as we can kind of recognize it, exists in far, far simpler things than we ever thought was possible. Um, case in point, the portrait spiders. Um, the, the spiders that children of time uses and sort of advances to a full-on technological civilization all of that is based on real-world research by, um, amongst others, uh, Dr. Fiona Cross, um, where we have discovered, yes, these tiny spiders with this you know, pinpoint-sized cluster of neurons for a brain are capable of very, very sophisticated decision-making, object permanence, planning, all of this stuff that is very hard to account for if you just say, well, obviously it's just, in, you know, it's pre-programmed instinct and they're just little robots going about the thing because they are with, even with that tiny sort of cerebral toolkit capable of very, very complicated reactive um, behavior. And we're, but yeah, we're discovering an awful lot of other, you know, it's, it's at all kind of levels of the animal kingdom. And, you know, to a certain extent beyond that, if you, I mean, even things like, um, you know, the, bizarrely complex uh, behaviors of slime molds and things like that. Intelligence is not the sole province of humanity. Intelligence is a thing that exists on a spectrum that st and, and starts much, much earlier than anyone ever really thought. And now we are kind of, you know, I think there's, there's, there's been a shift of philosophy that allows behavioral, uh, behavioral scientists to look at animals in that way, rather than just kind of assuming, well, you've got to assume they're robots and, barring very, very hard evidence otherwise, because otherwise it's anthropomorphization, which is very much the philosophy that was being taught to me when I was doing um, psychology in the um, early 90s. We've kind of moved on from that, and thank God for that. Um, you start, so yes, you start with that very common toolkit at one end, and you diverge, because obviously every creature has its own environment and its own needs and its own particular life cycle and whatever, and Playing where <clears throat> that's kind of the interesting bit to write about is all right. So let's say you have a um, something I've not done yet, and we'll probably do at some point. What if you have a creature with a full-on metamorphosis, where it's sentient in one stage of that? So you know, let's say you have a a a a, a society of hyper-evolved caterpillars, but the butterflies are completely um, insensate and only really exist to mate. What's their attitude to that? 
how does that become part of their culture? You know, the fact the fact that as 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 part of your just the way things are expected to go, you are going to cease to be you at some point in order to carry on the species. Oh, there were so many interesting things to explore there. Exactly. I mean, and and you know, and and honestly, nature is full of that sort of thing. There are so many. Even, even honestly, you know, even things much more, much closer to us than um, a caterpillar or a butterfly, things are, you know, very, very different. We have, um, <clears throat> I mean, obviously, you know, they're the huge handbag clutching thing going on about trans people at the moment. Nature is full of that. That's just a natural thing. There are so many species where gender is entirely fluid and individuals shift from one thing to another. Um, and yeah, what would it be like if that was just a more accepted thing? Um, yeah, can we can we maybe just imagine that in our science fiction? That would be fun, wouldn't it? You get this grand divergence um, over evolution, but at some point, if you are approaching, if you have a technological civilization, if you have a a civilization that develops any kind of science, you start to converge because even the most alien thing is sharing the universe with us. And the basic properties of the universe that we are at a level where we can we can examine to a reasonable level of certainty. So you know the the how the electromagnetic spectrum works, um, which gives us you know not just light and um, radiation, it gives us radio. Radio is kind of a you know the the radio frequencies they're not a human invention. Those are that is how the universe works that we are utilizing to to um, you know to communicate um binary yeah, the 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 basic level of information where something is there or it is not that's um quite possibly something that m many different sort of aliens might end up using because this is a it is the most efficient way of that we have found at least of um encoding information and, and passing on information um the universe works in a certain way at some point if we meet an advanced alien species especially if they come to us because by definition at this point if any alien comes to us they are more advanced than we are or they've gone a very weird path into getting into space i mean it, it, it's theoretically possible that you could have a, a, a species that just ends up in space through purely biological means and is just that kind of yes planet devouring locust swarm or something like that but it it's the evolutionary logic for it is really weird because you'd, you'd, but you could, I could, you know, if I wanted to, I could almost certainly put together a scenario where that would be the, that would be the case. But most of the, you know, most logically, if something turns up at our doorstep, it's more advanced than us. It has a grasp of the universe that is the same universe that we have a grasp of. And so you get this convergence towards no matter how alien they are. Um, Theoretically, we could start to communicate with them through basic, through expressing the constants of the universe, through talking about the hydrogen atom. Um, uh, I mean, you know, it's I think it's the um, the frequency of the hydrogen atom that is the one that we 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 think of as the most likely that any alien species would use to communicate on. I'm, I'm mangling the science of this, but that's because that is you know it has a significance that is universal. And one, one of the other, I mean, Paul, again, Paul, going back to Paul Cornell, one of the things he was talking about, actually, there is a reason why aliens might want to come to Earth, in that our, the size and distance of our moon 
gives us a perfect eclipse, and that is not actually in any way a universal. So this is one of the only places in the universe you could go and watch a proper eclipse. So quite possibly that is our tourist, mm. <laughs> our kind of tourist draw for alien species to come to Earth and spend their alien money. We thought they'd come and save us from ourselves, but instead they're just taking photos. Yeah, I mean, they don't need us there for the eclipse to work, of course, so they may be just waiting for us to wipe ourselves out so they can come and have their, their pristine tourist destination. It's kind of like if you want to have a picnic, but there's like tons of ants or bees around, do you think, I'll just wait for them to dissipate and then I'll go and have my nice time. The third book in the Children of Time series, Children of Memory, is coming out in November 2022 and you know, Lily and I cannot wait to read it. We've loved the other ones so much. Uh, it's a universe that neither of us uh, ever get tired of inhabiting. Um, so with that said, I think it might be time for some wild speculation. This is the part of the show where we ask our guests to go beyond the scope of their research or expertise and engage in some wild speculation about their field. Adrian, what do you think the biggest advancements in artificial intelligence will be over the next 100 years? Over the next how many hundred years? 100. Well, we can change that number if you have more interesting uh, things to say about 50 or 500 or 1,000. It feels a bit like assuming we have another 100 years is, is wildly optimistic um, <laughs> without, without moving into any other, any other centuries at all. Change the section um, to wild optimism. Honestly, I think it kind of gets to the point of I, for one, welcome our new AI overlords. Um, I, one of the other big debates you, you get within uh, amongst scientists and engineers is, is, is strong AI actually ever going to be a thing? And I think if it's going to be a thing, it feels like we'd probably get there in, in my lifetime even. Uh, and if it's not going to be a thing, then obviously it's not going to be a thing. It may well be that we will never make a machine that has that sort of that personhood, that consciousness. Um, although, you know, see previous discussion about whether we'd actually know. Um, but that, I think... People are very worried about the oh yeah an AI, an AI would be this um, yeah I mean I mean in fact we well we we get we get constant warnings from um, vastly powerful tech billionaires that yes this AI will be this vastly impersonal force that would heedlessly destroy all humanity under under uh, under its uh, kind of crush, crushing boots and not care a damn about anything other than itself. Um, I mean, there is a certain irony to the terms they tend to use to warn the people about AIs, because it, it always seems to me that they are absolutely describing themselves. Um, I think that there's a, you know, there is a destructive kind of um, expert system that we need to be worried about, which is the thing that does its job too well. It's the paperclip machine that breaks down the world for paperclips in the, the, you know, the most common iteration. That's not AI though. That's not, that's, that's, that's not, certainly not strong AI. Um, I think the enormous development that we that might actually save people is a strong AI that solves our problems. Um, it's um, we seem to be running into a hard limit to the human ability to solve human-generated problems, um, and it comes down to the way our political systems work. And it comes down to a set of tendencies of human neurology 
to be very easily fooled by certain things. Uh, we're very easily fooled by people who are very confident, despite the fact that confidence does not correlate with competence. Um, we are very easily fooled by um, belief systems that give us that promise a certainty, there's a certain answer rather than maybes and perhapses. Um, these things would probably not apply to an AI. Um, I think, and I think at some point we get to the point where actually an AI could solve our problems better than we will ever solve our problems because it will not have our limitations in the way we think. Um, if uh, another book recommendation for you, um, there is a book which deals with um, an AI trying to do this and the problems it runs into. It's a novella. It's by Justina Robson, who is one of the great masters of writing about AI and non-human perspectives. Uh, it's called Paper Hearts, if I'm right. Let me just double check that for you. Um, but it is a relatively recent. It is, yeah, Paper Hearts. Um, it's relatively recent. It is one of the most insightful looks at this specific scenario. Because we, we've kind of seen the far side of this scenario is um, Ian Banks. Basically, it's, it's, it's the culture. It's right, the, the, the AI is they've kind of taken over and they, they are just doing their best to make things as good as possible for as many people as possible. And it isn't perfect, but it is probably closer to perfect than most sci-fi settings ever get. Um, which is honestly why the plots of the culture books tend to deal with things happening at the edge of the culture or outside the culture, because everything in the culture is this kind of big ball of wonderfulness where nothing really happens. Because, because things happening tend to be bad. Um, but Paper Hearts is that transition. It's basically the, the AI telling humans, okay, this is how it's going to be. And humans saying, yeah, but that's all right. I told you to do this, but that's not what exactly what I imagined. Um, and it's brilliant. And it's, 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 it is honestly the, the only book I've, I've actually read which really wrestles with this particular very common scenario in that transition moment uh but that i mean honestly i think if if we're good if we're going to have a big development in ai in the next hundred years before everything butts us down to the uh next stone age maybe that's it mm -hmm. that's what i'm hoping for that's why i'm hoping for too we hope to have adrian join us at a data fest event in the future so finally on to the last question each episode, we pose our listeners a question and invite people from around the world to offer their thoughts. We'll read the most interesting ones out on the next episode. Our question this week is, do you see biology having a bigger role in computing in the future? So that's it from us today. We'll be back next time with more insight, innovation, and wild speculation. Feel free to drop us an email to say hello or to suggest a topic or just to say hi or even to make corrections. You can email us at datafest at thedatalab.com or you can find us on Twitter at datafest underscore. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time for another episode of The Last Question. <laughs>